Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for staff at King's College London following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures which explores diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. This semester's lecture series, entitled Power to the People, Identity, Difference and Inequality, has been coordinated by Dr Kate Kirkpatrick. Handouts, presentation slides and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Good afternoon, everyone. This is my first time giving a formal lecture, and I feel both very privileged and quite terrified, so bear with me. I thought I'd start with a little bit about who I am, because that helps to explain why I think diversity and inclusion are so important. So I'm I'm Sarah Guerra. I work here at King's. I'm the Director of Diversity and Inclusion, but I'm also the daughter of immigrants. My mum came from Mauritius, my dad from Trinidad. They both moved over here in the 60s to be nurses. I was born in Tottenham. I changed primary school three times. I went to a mediocre secondary school and university, and I was the first person in my family to go to university. But I was a child like any other, with hopes, ambitions, dreams. Um, And all the way through my school life, I was really discouraged by those in authority from really having any ambition. I was constantly reminded to stay in my lane, to remember that people like me don't do A-levels or degrees or the law or join the civil service. Yet here I am today, talking to all of you, finding myself working at a globally renowned university, one that's extremely prestigious and well-respected, And not only that, I'm at a senior level doing a job that I love. I'm the Director of Diversity and Inclusion, and I help to shape and guide our leaders, our managers, and our students, and the university's future direction. So I suppose it shows I've got a lot to offer. And I suppose just to give a little flavour, I thought I'd also show you a picture of my family. I'm also the mother of four children in a blended family. And what I'm going to talk to you today about is why I think equality, diversity, and inclusion are important, what they mean both the legal context and the sort of reality of that, what that means in everyday work or study, have a bit of a reflection on what the reality is like compared to what we say in the law and what we say on paper. Uh, And then the main part of what I really want to talk about today is that equality, diversity and inclusion, I think, is an innovation mechanism. Uh, And it's what's needed to help maximise the opportunities And in doing so, we'll think a bit about the mindsets that we need and the sorts of thinking patterns that we need. I'll also look a bit at the unique opportunities, I think, that higher education presents us and whether or not we're maximising those. So before we start, I was told we weren't allowed to do much question and answer because of the nature of the videoing and things. But I do want to take just a minute or so for you all to do a reflective exercise. What I'd like you each to do, and we'll take a whole minute, 90 seconds to consider when you have been your most creative. When have you done your best work? What the circumstances were like? What inspired you? What motivated you? What did that feel like? So please take that time, make a note to yourself. I'm not going to ask you to share it, but I think it's, you know, it's, for me, it's quite an important thing for you to think about that and be able to use that in the context of the lecture. Okay, so we'll come back to that nearer the end. It's a very long time, a minute and a half, when you're standing here, so hopefully you all did use that time to think. 
So, touching on the equality context in the UK, most of what we're governed by is the Equality Act 2010. That sets out nine protected characteristics. Uh, they're listed here, race, age, sex, gender reassignment, disability, religion or belief, sexual orientation, marriage or civil partnership, pregnancy and maternity. And then those uh, are all protected under the Act from direct discrimination, indirect discrimination, <coughs> harassment and victimisation. Now, I don't intend today to go into the, the in-depth definitions of those things. Essentially, direct discrimination is straightforwardly identifying someone with those characteristics and doing something to disadvantage them. Indirect discrimination is by implication or by the result, you, are, you tend to be impacting a certain group rather than others. So a very common example might be that you have access to something in a certain place that requires stairs. Now, that, that theoretically gives everyone the ability to get there. But if you can't negotiate stairs for some, some reason, you are less likely to be able to get there. So indirectly you are prevented from getting there. And then harassment has a long technical definition, and I, I really won't go into that today, but that is essentially different acts or a series of acts that makes people feel uncomfortable as if you've created a hostile environment. And then victimisation is where, as a result of the first three, you know, bringing a claim or making a complaint as a result of the first three things, you are treated differently or less well. Um, there's obviously loads and loads of law and loads of case law, but that isn't really the purpose of today's lecture. As a university, we are subject to what's called the public sector equality duty, which requires us to eliminate discrimination, advance equality of opportunity, and most importantly, I think, for our purposes, foster good relationships between different groups within the King's community, and as a, as a body like us, show, be able to show that we have had due regard for equality in our policies, processes, practices and procedures. And then there are some specific duties that different types of organisations have, and they include things like publishing information. And if you go to the King's website, if you go and look at the diversity and inclusion pages, you will find more information about all of those things. So moving on to what do these words even mean? Equality, diversity, inclusion, equality of opportunity. And what's the difference between them? So equality is about ensuring that everybody has an equal opportunity and is not treated differently or discriminated against because of their characteristics. Now, we talked about the, the you know, Equality Act, so those nine characteristics are the ones that are protected by the Act. But there are obviously a number of different things that people could be discriminated against. And one common thing that people ask about is socioeconomic status. That isn't actually protected by the Act, uh, but we at King's obviously do a lot of work and recognise that socioeconomic status, class, the amount of money you have as you grow up, plays a role in the advantage that you have and plays a role in whether or not you can access the opportunities available. Diversity is about taking account of the differences between people and groups of people and placing a positive value on those differences. A definition that one of my team found, and I want to say thank you to Tala who helped me with the slides. Uh, diversity is a co-presence of difference, inclusion as the next step where diverse groups are also able to participate and lead. And the key thing there is that it's about different types of people being present. Inclusion is where those different groups or individuals with those different back backgrounds are culturally and socially accepted, welcomed and equally treated. 
So inclusion has something about having a sense of belonging, feeling respected and valued for who you are as an individual. And in inclusion is an inherent part of diversity. The fact of many different types of things or people being included in something. And then the last one, which is the thing that we are often concerned about in employment, is equality of opportunity. It's about ensuring everybody has an equal chance to take up the opportunities and to make full use of the opportunities on offer and to fulfil their potential. And one of the, the, the ways this is often summarised, and I found out just a bit too late to add it to the slides, actually this was apparently coined by a female executive from either Google or Netflix, that diversity is being asked to the party, so being invited... Inclusion is being asked to dance, so being asked to participate when you're at the party. And belonging is dancing like no one's watching. So actually feeling that you are comfortable and happy and able to be yourself. So all of those things should lead to, to an environment where people feel included, where extraneous circumstances about our identity, which are very important to us, but shouldn't influence the opportunities we have or the way that people treat us, discrimination should not exist in an education environment and an employment environment, because people should be seen and heard for their knowledge, their talent and their capabilities. But the fact is that we don't see that. We do see that people, their colour, their gender, their age, their sexual orientation, their disability status, all affect how we're treated in the workplace, how we're treated in everyday life. Um, and that does prevent talent and creativity emerging. So, as individuals, we've got to take time and make an effort to prevent ourselves falling into those default assumptions. So that's obviously a word cloud that sort of tries to capture some of the things that can happen. And as an, as an employer, as an education provider, it's really important that King's really thinks about that and does what it can to mitigate those things that take place in society and in our structures. So I wanted to talk a bit about the concept of intersectionality and particularly look at it in the context of higher education. So I don't know how many of you are familiar with the, with the term. It's a term that was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989 in her seminal critique of the US anti-discrimination law and its failure to acknowledge black women's unique experience of racism and sexism as simultaneous and inseparable. Crenshaw argued... If there's no unified group of women that experience gender discrimination in the same way, it makes no sense to treat sexism and racism as if they could be isolated and then understood and redressed separately. And she gave voice to a long-standing and widespread, and widespread theoretical preoccupations and provided a much-needed frame of reference for the comparison and negotiation of conversations around equality. I'd really advise you seeking out her work, but also looking at some of the, the talks that are available online. Because what her work came out of the fact that in the US law, you could take a claim for sex discrimination, you could take a claim for racism, and several black women were finding that they, they were at this intersection and they were having both claims rejected because they didn't technically fit into the, both of them each, each individually, but it was the accumulation of those things. We all have, if you think about yourself, you, you will have an intersection, you'll have many, many intersections. One of the things that people often sort of refute diversity and inclusion talks with is, well, what about if I'm a man? What about if I'm white? There is a degree to which it's felt that diversity is talking to some minority group 
We all have diversity, and diversity and inclusion is about making the most of, of everything that we all have so that we can all feel comfortable and participate. And then when we layer that into higher education, and I don't know how much of this is something that students feel, but as a member of staff, what we have is all these different populations. We have an academic population, we have researchers, we have professional staff, we have students, and then a multiplicity of different types of students. And what, these, these each have sub, subcultures and subsets, and what can quite often happen in a university context, and if you go and look at our regulations, you'll see there are different regulations that apply to academics compared to someone perhaps who works in HR or in our estates and facilities. And that's quite a historic thing, that universities have had these different populations, and how diversity and inclusion works what advantages or what disadvantages can occur because of those internal subsets are something that we need to think about. And what we need in any circumstance is for our thinking and our actions uh, to be able to be sophisticated and broad enough to take account of all these layers and intersections. Over the years, there's been a lot of discussion, but quite often there's an attempt to simplify it down as if we can find this single answer to what is a very, very complex scenario. So why is it even important? I'm hoping that most people uh, do think it's important. There is definitely a school of thought that thinks it's just because it will offend people and it's important to be politically correct. There's a far stronger uh, sets of thoughts, and it's becoming stronger, actually, that it's, it's important because it's the right thing to do. There is a moral imperative for those, everybody in society to have an equal place in it, to be able to participate and contribute, uh, and that no, no individual, because of their status, because of their identity, should be excluded. But also, from a, a business perspective, from an organisation perspective, there is a lot of research that shows that you are a more effective and productive organisation if you have diverse teams, diverse staff. So what I'm going to move on to talking about is my proposition that equality, diversity and inclusion is an innovation mechanism, that it's exciting and it can take us to new places, and that it's an imperative for success for any, any organisation anywhere in the world. It enables fresher, more creative ideas that leads to innovation and people who feel comfortable and happy tend to be healthier and happier um, and they will then participate more and provide more to you as an organisation. But it also leads to people that are stimulated and that are growing and that feel that they can contribute, contribute more. Uh, so for a business, for a university, for any organisation, it's... it's creates a competitive advantage or a productivity advantage. Uh, for a university, it's about our attractiveness to students and it's about the quality of our education, our ability to attract and retain staff and our research and student funding, which all ultimately gives us our licence to operate. And so it must form all, part of all of our decision-making and thinking. So rather than me talk constantly, I this TED talk um, sort of sums, up, sums it up and also I think can deal with some of the scepticism that can arise. It's about 10 minutes long. That was obviously quite a convincing set of figures and information that's relatively recent. And I think for me the most powerful slide is the one that shows the difference between women coming out of education and those that have succeeded in progressing through different ranks of a company. That video was very much focused on gender. You could layer in any other intersection of our identity, any of the other nine protected characteristics, particularly race or sexual orientation and disability, and, and it would be a similar, if not worse, story. So I'm going to talk a bit more about why I think 
EDIs and innovation mechanism, and more importantly, what we need to get there. And just to sort of remind ourselves, it enables us to understand others, it enables collaboration, and it creates an environment where everyone can be creative and thoughtful. We in higher education, our work is vital to the lives of millions of humans, species, cultures and environments. We at King's say our mission is to make the world a better place. So I see us as having a moral imperative to be as effective as we can be because we've been entrusted with this responsibility and we also have billions of pounds to make the world a better place. So everyone working in this sector and everyone participating in the sector must exceed all expectations. And to be as good as we can be, we need to constantly rev review and learn and change. Society never stands still, so neither should we. So I'm going to talk a bit about what I think is necessary, which is an innovative mindset. Uh, I've taken quite a lot of my material from uh, Nesta. They produced 20 tools about innovation, uh, and the, the reference is in your handout. So what is a mindset? A mindset is an established set of attitudes determined by your perception of the world, how you make sense of situations consciously and unconsciously, and how you interpret in, in information. So for diversity and inclusion and for the innovation we're talking about, we probably need three specific elements in a mindset. Collaborative, experimental, and action. The collaborative mindset is characterised by being driven by the we and not the me, being, seeking to understand situations from multiple perspectives, being concerned with demonstrating empathy and humility to better engage and understand and help build ideas with rather than for people. It's about engaging with citizens and stakeholders to create shared ownership of new solutions, mobilising resources and legitimacy to make change happen. It's the agile responding to changing environments with flexibility and the empathetic understanding of others' experiences and frames of reference. And if you sort of think about some of that, that's why diversity is so important, because if you only have a single point of view or a single set of people with similar experiences, how can you get an understanding of other experiences and frames of reference? But it's also about the perseverance to deal with resistance, about imaginative exploring and envisaging new possible futures. It's about being outcome focused and having a strong commitment to the real world effects. So again, when we sort of look at the history of diversity and inclusion, there's been a lot of theoretical discussion, but when we actually look at what's happened, the real world impacts, the outcomes, have not matched that theoretical discussion. And so it's about being courageous and having willingness to take risks and critically, and this is partly why I asked you to do a reflection exercise, having a reflective habit of critically reflecting on process and results and having the curiosity and the desire to explore multiple possibilities, all of which while being action-orientated. That's one mindset. That was the collaborative mindset. We also need the experimental mindset, which is led by curiosity, by the desire to learn, focusing on learning through lived experiences or learning from others, just by trying new things in a different way and using those learning to create solutions that best fit the challenge. And then the third mindset we need is some, the action mindset, which tends to be characterised by being optimistic, pushing for change, having the energy and belief that things can be done to alter and improve the status quo. As someone who's been a diversity professional for quite a long time, I think that, that for me, is one of the things that makes the most difference. When people believe that change can happen, 
it's far more likely to. Quite a lot of the time, people sort of shrug their shoulders or just have a real apathy of, well, it's, it's, it's far bigger than we can do anything about. And actually, that change in a mindset of, well, it can change. Yeah, if we look historically, things do change, but they only change because people apply themselves. So back to the action mindset, there are opportunities within the environment which can be seized upon, and they're concerned with helping to create the conditions for change and action through gaining support, mobilising people, resources, sharing knowledge, and showing success, showing examples of success. One of the biggest contributors to uh, improvement is people celebrating the things that have improved. Quite often we take them for granted and we don't notice them, but by showing and look, actively looking at what's, what's improved, it gives us confidence to carry on. Mindset's not fixed and they can change. And we change mindsets through new and different ways of thinking and new and different perspectives. So in, in teams, in the environments we work in, we must reward certain attitudes and behaviours, like the curiosity and courageousness and agility that I was talking about. We as individuals must embrace things to become open to doing things differently rather than reverting to business as usual. The thing with these, it's unlikely, I mean, it was a very long list of things that I read out, uh, that these characteristics or these mindsets will exist in one person or in a, single, in a single person. And that's another reason why we need a variety of people and a variety of brains addressing individual problems. But as well as the mindset, we need to consider our thinking. Now, before I started preparing for this lecture, I hadn't, I hadn't understood that there were terms to describe this. But the sort of thinking we need is what's called double-loop thinking. Uh, that looks at what we do, the actions, the processes, the techniques. But it also looks at why we do what we do. The assumptions, the beliefs, the social norms that are implicit in, in that thinking. But, and we look at what the results and the outcomes are, the outcomes and the outputs. So it's a combination of three different levels of thinking. Where a single loop learning, which is only reflecting on the actions we've taken to produce the outcome, not looking at the circumstances that have created that, the why behind it. So it's critical for innovation and for uh, real diversity and inclusion for us to reflect beyond the actions we've taken and look instead at the reasons why they were taken. Because... All of the things that we're socialised into, all of the things that we've experienced, affect why we do something. We also need to think about the skills and behaviours that we need. Cultures and mindsets matter as much as the methods to embedding innovation. Bureaucracies may find it easier to crush new ideas and marginalise individual innovators. Cultures that value openness, curiosity and willingness to experiment are vital if innovation is to be more than rhetoric. And so we need a diverse range of skills. Accelerated, accelerating learning is one, which means skills to explore and iterate new ideas to inform and validate new solutions. Things like data and technology literacy, or a working understanding of prototyping tools, being willing to experiment and test. We need skills that allow us to work together and lead change. Skills like actively involving citizens. You know, I'm not... Hopefully, many of you are aware of lots of the work that King's has done with organisations like Citizens UK, which absolutely have that philosophy. How do you involve the people that are, are experiencing the thing that needs to be improved uh, so that we can broker new options and facilitate conversations with different stakeholders to create shared ownership of new ideas? And for that, we need skills like collaboration, listening, storytelling, 
influence negotiation and political manoeuvring so that we can win support, hearts and minds and finance to get new ideas off the ground. As I said, these mindsets, the skills, they're not likely to reside in one individual, so it re reinforces the need to facilitate conversations about the skills needed amongst a wider, more empowered team. We need all of them. We need the innovation, the innovative mindset, the types of thinking and the skills. So one of the things that particularly struck me, and I think maybe is particularly why I like working at university, is we have untold opportunity in our university environment. And higher education is a game-changing opportunity. Partly, it is the life stage that students come to us with, and it's the mindset that students come with. Uh, it's the nature of coming here, is you are open to learning. Come with a mindset of possibility. And in, in that is you know, the opportunity to innovate, just the, the very act of what you are doing. And these are quite unique aspects of higher education everywhere. And so we, we theoretically have the potential to be one of the most innovative places in the world, this university, every university. Uh, and one of the things I wanted to look at was some of the campaigns that students have run or that have been started by students that have led to real change. And the three I'm going to look at are Roads Must Fall, SOAS Justice for Cleaners, and It Stops Here, which was a, a King's campaign. So I don't know how, how familiar you are with each of these, but the Rose Must Fall uh, campaign started in South Africa, but there was also one that sort of followed it in Oxford. Uh, the original one was a protest movement that began in March 2015. It was begun by, I may not pronounce these names correctly, apologies, Chimani Maxwelli, who was an activist and student at un the University of Cape Town in South Africa, when they flung excrement at a statue of Cecil Rhodes. They used a variety of methods in their campaign, occupation, civil disobedience, demonstrations and internet activism. What happened as a result of their campaign was that the statue was removed from the University of Cape Town campus. But more importantly, I think, is that it sparked a global conversation about decolonisation. There's a quote here. When the statue of Cecil Rhodes, a British mining magnate and coloniser, came down at the University of Cape Town, it was just the beginning of a now worldwide conversation about colonisation in higher education. It shifted emphasis from diversify, i.e. the increasing of numbers, to decolonise the changing of structures. And it led to demands within higher education institutions, particularly elite ones like Oxford University, where the previous discussion about diversity had centred entirely around representation and admissions. And it framed students' demands within, de within a decolonisation framework marked by a reorientation away from that kind of politics. And it centred empire and slavery as projects of economic, political and material, as well as cultural domination at the heart of its explanation of racialised inequalities and its understanding of the kind of structural change needed. It encouraged institutions to, to recognise their own racism. The Rosemus for Oxford campaign quote, is, more, is about more than a statue. In fact, our first action as a movement was getting the Oxford Union to admit it is institutionally racist after their colonial comeback cocktail. We are determined to tackle Oxford University's problem with race and its perpetuation of the legacies of empire in all their insidious forms from a multitude of angles. Brian Quober, one of the organisers of the Rose Must Fall in Oxford, said internally, Rose Must Fall in South... So this is sort of a, a quote that looks at the difference in the two campaigns and the different motivations. Rose Must Fall in South Africa 
had a much clearer articulation of its political boundaries, basing itself on black consciousness, black feminism, the black radical tradition and pan-Africanism. Rose Must Fall in Oxford has structured itself more loosely and less politically around decolonising the iconography, curriculum and racial representation of the university. So looking at the SOAS campaign, the School for Oriental and African Studies, uh, they began a campaign in 2006, that was their, their cleaners, who primarily were seeking to be brought in-house. They undertook strikes, they had internet activism, they occupied the director's office, undertook demonstrations, uh, and they organised a range of support events, Justice for Cleaners Latino Nights and the Justice for Cleaners Days, as well as organising for students to wear T-shirts at graduation to get their message across. In 2008, they, the SOAS cleaners won the London Living Wage. 2013-14 um, saw a series of strikes uh, which resulted in improved sick pay, holiday pay and pensions. And in 2017, the campaign was renamed as Justice for Workers to include all outsourced staff. Similar campaigns as a result of that initial one were triggered in other universities, including here at King's, and I'm proud to say that we did uh, insource our cleaners and security guards in this August this year. And then the last campaign I want to talk a bit about was the, is the It Stops Here campaign, which hopefully some of you are familiar with. That stemmed from research that the, the NUS, National Union of Students, did uh, back in 2009-2010. They conducted a literature review and an online survey of over 2,000 women students' experiences of harassment, financial control over their course, and institution choices, stalking, violence and sexual assault. Following that, in 2015, an activist campaign by KCLSU's Women's Association uh, to lobby the university to do more around sexual harassment on campus. They developed an online pledge, website, video, posters, leaflets, events and training. And the outcomes has been, one of the outcomes, it's a bit like um, the speaker said, how much individual actions contribute and how much a sort of... Uh, Adding your voice to a, a and creating momentum is hard to say, but King's is committed to improving its policies and processes around bullying, harassment and sexual misconduct. It expanded formally the remit of the diversity and inclusion team, including appointing my post and recruiting quite a lot of new DNI staff to ensure that there was a really focused approach to eradicating bullying and harassment on campus. But... So those are all interesting campaigns and they, they had some real impact. Part of what I sort of was thinking to myself is why were they so necessary? Why was it that they were not able to have those conversations? Because all of the things that are in them seem utterly reasonable and like they should have been a conversation as opposed to needing protest. So are we providing the space and empowerment that we need to our students? Are we being innovative? Do we enable the space for creativity and difference? Or do we stifle debate? Are we, at the universities, do we have the mindsets we need? Or are we reproducing old models based on existing power structures with the way that we operate our committees, the way that we include students? Are all of those things actually not sufficiently innovative? I've got a couple of things here that some of the campaigners said. Roseanne Chantaluki, who was in the Rosemus for Oxford, patriarchy always finds a way of blocking progress in these movements through the toxic social dynamics of the movement, the gendering of work, the ideas of leadership and hierarchy that it brings. 
Also, to challenge a powerful white institution as a non-white student involves an incredible amount of physical and psychological exertion that can be extremely destructive if left unchecked. The demands for action and organising often appear to trump the individual demands for rest, wellness and self-care. Movements need to ensure that their organisers are looked after as much as possible and must operate on a politics of radical compassion. And then Faisi Ismail, a senior teaching fellow from SOAS, said, it is perhaps no coincidence that it was the combination of forces, ongoing strikes and protests by the unions and the campaigns, regular student occupations and cleaning and catering staff beginning to organise together that forced SOAS management to surrender. There will undoubtedly be more to fight for, but SOAS workers will have gained the confidence to win. For now, this victory must serve as an inspiration for struggles, not only in higher education, but across the whole of the public sector. So part of my premise is that we need to create more disruption because we need to create those open and changing mindsets. Some of what we can do here is think about who is doing the research and what is that research on. I don't know how many of you... Well, you don't know what you don't know. Um, and innovation comes through looking at things through different lenses. Not sure how many of you are familiar with this book, Caroline Criado Perez's Invisible Women. The entire book is examining the gender data gap. And I have to say, I was completely dumbfounded. And I've picked one example uh, of, of something that had women been included at a different stage, maybe the world would be in a different place. So Diana Taimina, in two hours, found a solution that had eluded mathematicians for centuries. In 1997, she was a Latvian mathematician. She was at a workshop in Cornell University. They were modelling the hyperbolic plane. Now, I don't know if there's any mathematicians out there. They were modelling it out of paper. And the explanation that I understand, I'm not a mathematician, is it's the geometric opposite of a sphere. So the surfaces curve away from itself. And it's used in real life uh, to work out multidimensional data. It's used by Pixar animators to simulate realistic cloth. Uh, it's used by the auto industry to design aerodynamic cars. Acoustic engineers to design concert halls. Tamina had learnt to crochet as a girl, her handiwork to make clothes. She saw the paper model and realised she could crochet it. So she did. They've now created hundreds of models based on that initial one. It provides a concrete sense of the space, expanding exponentially. It's a visceral sense of the hyperbolic. Um, and her creations are now the standard model. But... You know, there's a relatively a relative large amount of luck and coincidence that she was there and able to have that opportunity. Had more people who could do crochet been involved, and they tend to be women, it tends to be a feminised thing, been involved earlier, who knows what discoveries could have been made. And whilst that's quite, quite an old example, there's a recent report, evidence from Raj Chetty and John Van Rienen, that found that white children in the US are more likely to become inventors than black children are. And there's also a report from the Runnymede Trust called Aiming Higher, which identifies issues within higher education in the UK for black students and makes recommendations as to how to increase the equality of opportunities. So all of that demonstrates if we exclude groups from the production of knowledge, we lose out on, on productive and transformative insights. Given the prevalence of crocheters amongst men, how long might that discovery taken? So I think I've used up all my time, which is lucky because I'm at the conclusion. So hopefully I've given you some sense of why EDI is important, what those terms mean, 
looked at some of the mindsets and thinking that's required, looked at that in practice in higher education. And what I'd like you to do, not, not now, but go back to your reflective exercise at some point, because when you've done your best work and what the circumstances are like are exactly what we're trying to create is, as a circumstance, and that's what diversity and inclusion is. So uh, thank you for listening, and goodbye. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.